This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And I met Charles Fraser a really long time ago. And uh, we're going to explain that as we go. But The Trackers is his new novel. You may remember Verena from a couple of years ago. And now we are in the Great Depression. And Chuck, you've written a noir set in the Great Depression. <laughs> Before we go anywhere, let's start with that. How did yeah. we get here? How did The Trackers come about? I've been thinking about this book and working on this book with interruptions for 10 years at least. And uh, and I don't know what it would have been if I had just worked straight through 10 years ago. Once COVID happened, a lot of what I had planned was just clearly not going to work. The usual just going places, doing essentially location scouting. I had a big trip to Wyoming planned and, you know, that just didn't happen in 2020 and 2021. I started thinking about how the novel could be recast a little bit with places that I could just work purely off of memory. And I mean, the West is one of those places, the, that Rocky Mountain West. We lived in Colorado for most of the 80s. And when I was a kid, we went to Wyoming or Colorado or both every summer and had dad was a uh, school administrator. So back then they had big chunks of time in the summer. So I had spent a lot of time out there. We've got a cast of four characters, four main characters, let's call it. We've got a painter called Val. We've got an aspiring senator slash rancher slash Eastern transplant, which we're going to yeah. come back to, a guy called Long. He's also a veteran of the war. Long's younger wife, Eve, who has a wild backstory. <laughs> and then there's also a cowboy who yep. works with Long on his ranch called Pharaoh. And I think we need to start with Val because I suspect that Val was the first character that sort of fully formed while you were noodling around with this manuscript for 10 years. The three main characters kind of came around at the same time, uh, but I probably spent more time with Val early on because he's telling the story. I never really thought of him as the main character. He's the guy who's observing. He prefers to be a little distant from what he's observing, but then he's not able to do that. Uh, as the story goes on, I had no sense. I, this photograph I saw that had these characters in it that's the first thing 10 years ago that I, I saw that photograph of WPA painters in a little post office. And you could kind of see that the mural that was being worked on had cowboys and mountains and plains and that. It was just the, the those three people, the painter, the, the old up on a scaffold working, the older guy and a woman that, and all I could think was who, you know, there's a story here. Who are these three people? You know, what could their relationships turn out to be? But getting the getting the storyteller right was was the kind of the first main thing. Val has come out from the East Coast. Yeah. This is clearly his first experience of sort of the West in this great mythological sense. You know, we're still living with that legacy as well. Yeah. But he yeah. Val's a little naive. He's not hapless, but he's a little naive. He's, yeah. he's been left at the altar. His fiance has yeah. said, sorry, yeah. pal, this is about to be a mistake. I'm going <laughs> to run off and marry this other guy. So he's a little bit at loose ends, but he's also, there aren't any jobs at the moment. I mean, it's the Great yeah. Depression. He's got a professor, a former art professor who has set him up nicely. And here he is in yeah. the Wild West, living in a bunkhouse. Yeah. kind of unprepared for what has happened <laughs> to him. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't know the West. Mm -mm. His, his benefactor in the New Deal programs who's given him a chance has said, don't screw up, kid. So he's got pressure on. And then he's staying out at this, this big ranch with a wealthy Eastern art collector rancher. So He's he's in over his head from the minute he he takes the train west. And he has no idea. 
which is actually fun for us as readers. And I, I just want to mention, we are going to stay spoiler free in this conversation because you really have written a very classic noir. I mean, there is a femme fatale who we're going to get to in a second. There is sort of the wronged husband. And then there's Val, our narrator, who's a little like not quite sure what's happening. And, you know, I know I raised Pharaoh earlier than maybe I should have this cowboy, but he has this sort of grounded awareness that when it's played against Val, it's it's pretty striking, the two of these guys. Yeah. <laughs> but Pharaoh's a good dude. I mean, he's he's who he is, but he's a good dude. But I do, I want to talk about the sort of power bit, because you are yeah. essentially writing about a giant power struggle. You're just doing it in a different way. So let's talk about John Long and let's talk about his wife, Eve, who is much younger than he is. <laughs> Yeah, he's uh, he's from a, a wealthy family, well-educated uh, back east, and I always saw it. I can't remember whether I even specified it, but sort of the Boston area somewhere up that way. And he doesn't get along with his family. He doesn't, he doesn't like them much. And there was this piece of family property, this gigantic hunk of Wyoming land that one of his wealthy ancestors in the 19th century just bought on a whim. And he, he discovers a way to kind of disconnect from his family by settling his inheritance with that land and goes out there uh, to be a rancher and then, uh, and then eventually discovers he, he really wants a little more power than, than running a ranch gives him. I had a thought when you were sort of laying this out early in the book, I was like, oh, he's a second son. Because that's what second sons mm. did, right? They went yeah. west. That, yeah. was, that was the only thing, either, you know, join the priesthood or <laughs> go west. And, yeah. you know, have you been to the Huntington Library recently? Or like in no. the last like 10 years? Okay. No. So there's a new gallery and this, I was there maybe six months ago. And this is in Pasadena. And it's, it's a fabulous resource. And but at the same time, I walked in and there are all of these very puritanical portraits from New England and upstate New York. And I was like, yeah. none of this belongs here. <laughs> none of this. All yeah. of this art. This is the art yeah. that I grew up with, you know, seeing in tiny museums across New England, you know, being trotted there as a, as a school yeah. kid. And it doesn't belong. And to a certain extent, John Long doesn't necessarily belong. I mean, this is a guy who's got a Renoir and a Matisse in the yeah. entryway of his very big ranch house. <laughs> like, yeah. that's not necessarily what you think of when you think of the American. He's got a few Remingtons, yeah. but it's mainly things you wouldn't expect. And it's stuff that he bought in France after World War One. when you could, uh, I did a bunch of reading about this. You could, you could buy some of those things dirt cheap in the years right after. So his wife, Eve, who we discover is a runaway and a hobo kid, which we're gonna come back to the research he had to do on hobo kids, because I didn't think I understood that it was a lot of teenagers who were riding the rails during the Great Depression. I think I assumed everyone was sort of an adult, but again, I grew up in an era where, you know, children were children and a 16 year old was in high school. Like we just didn't have the sort of yeah. conceptual wherewithal to understand exactly what was going on here. But Eve was also a girl singer in cowboy bands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let me say a little bit about that teenage hobo thing. There were there were literally hundreds of thousands of teenagers, some as young as twelve, out hitchhiking and and you know catching freight trains, going from place to place, following the seasons of agricultural work, and a lot of these kids had never been had never been more than 30 or 40 miles away from home. And all of a sudden they're on their own seeing, you know, the parts of the world they never expected to see. And that first part of that was very exciting in a lot of cases. Uh, and then they, then the reality set in of, of what a desperate situation they're in. There's a really great book published in the late thirties called boy and girl tramps of America. Oh, wow. By a guy named uh, Minahan. He was a graduate student at University of Chicago and could pass for a teenager. And he went out and traveled with them. And it's just an amazing book. And it, I had to scan it into my phone page by page 
because there wasn't even a, a a used copy on on the internet. But University Press of Mississippi has just republished that book, so it's available suddenly. So Eve, who becomes our femme fatale, she, I have to say, I'm really fond of this character. I'm really fond of her. She's a little ahead of her time. She's certainly more worldly than Val. <laughs> yeah, yeah, much so. And she knows it. I mean, yeah. that's kind of oh, the fun yeah. of it. But for you, I mean, you're playing these characters off against each other, but you've always been really clear that narrative voice is also a character for you in, in any of yeah. the novels. I mean, this is your fifth book. There's a playfulness on the page with this book that I haven't necessarily seen in the earlier novels. I mean, it's just so clear you're having a ball writing this book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is yeah, so I did clear. Have a good time. <laughs> it is so clear. But okay, how do you balance the needs, though, of the story? And how do you let the yeah. characters do what they're going to do without running amok? I mean, yeah. I know you do research. I know you like to take a lot of notes, but you said you also lost the notebook early on when you were oh, doing yeah, a ton of research. Yeah. yeah. It took years to find that photograph that was kind of the, the very spark of this. I liked this set of characters, these four, these four people. And I saw the Pharaoh's old enough to be Eve's grandfather, old enough to be Long's father and Val's grandfather. And just finding these these triangles with the different combinations of, of those characters and realizing pretty early on that Eve was kind of the apex of all of the triangles. She's the main character, Val's the storyteller. She's the one that's that's motivating all of them. She's driving the story for all three of them. I think Long resents it more than Val does, but oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. if you know anything about a noir, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are going spoiler free. But at the same time, there yeah. are some patterns that a, a noir will follow, and um, there is some really satisfying stuff that happens <laughs> in this book. And there's a lot of, I mean, we end up in Florida for a minute chasing a lead, and yeah. Val's really lucky he got out of there with all of his yeah. fingers and all of his ears yeah. and everything else and we'll leave it for listeners to discover what happens but there's a roughness to this story and i think it felt for me at least as a reader that part of that is capturing the american west when you're also playing with the idea though that it's all a myth that none of it is like we're we're taught to believe this story of the big-shouldered yes. american west mm -hmm. and really we're all still a little hapless in yeah. a way and i enjoyed that i enjoyed playing with that myth and that um you know that people in the the little town of Dawes have stories about Pharaoh that he that he was the young soldier who stabbed crazy horse with a bayonet and killed him that he was the the young gunslinger down in uh, New Mexico during the Johnson County War I guess the name is that uh, Billy the kid made his name at and that he helped Billy not be killed uh and escape to mexico and he'll deny those stories deny those stories and then he offers a little hint now and then that like yeah maybe you maybe i'm not telling you the entire truth here uh, and but he's he's consistent in ridiculing val or anybody else who wants to look at that 19th century west as this mythological time uh, he just sees it as a whole lot of it as stupid and violent. Nostalgia is something that you've always sort of poked at, though, in mm -hmm. all of the books. I mean, when you look at Cold Mountain, for instance, I mean, not a Civil War novel. I mean, you're talking about the consequences of war and the impact of war on individual people. Yes, it happens to be set in that period, but a 13 Moons, uh, Nightwoods, uh, Verena, and certainly Verena. I mean, you are playing with people's nostalgia for moments yeah. that you know nostalgia can be a warm fuzzy feeling sure but it can also be yeah. used as a weapon yeah and yeah. the idea that you're in there sort of going hey wait a minute slow your roll people <laughs> we need to sit and think about this it feels like that is always going to be the spine of a charles fraser novel no matter what period you're working in. I mean, Nightwoods, 1960s. Like, yeah, yeah, we're in Appalachia, but not quite what I was expecting. So yeah. 
you know, that and the isolation of your characters, right? Like, I know you just said Eve is the pinnacle of each of these, tri- she's the apex of each of these triangles, but everyone is so isolated. They're isolated by their own secrets. They're isolated yeah. by what they want. They're isolated by what they don't know. Because yeah. they don't know what they don't know. Yeah. That's a lot to put into a book and not get in the way of the story, Chuck. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> Can we talk about structure? Can we talk about craft? Can we talk about how yes. we get? Because you're playing with time in some books and others, you're playing more with character and memory. And yeah. But it always comes back to time, doesn't it? I don't do a lot of planning. Um, I A lot of that stuff just arises out of the time, the situation, the characters, and the place. And I, I never start a book out with ideas. Um, I always start a book out with people and places and what could happen here, what could happen among these people and in this in this location, wherever that that happens to be and the time. Uh, and like with this book, in terms of the time, I didn't go out looking for similarities between the depression and now, but they kind of beat you over the head at some point. I'm just working with those with those basic connections, and I trust that those that those ideas arise out of out of those elements. If I immerse myself enough into into that, that the the characters will tell me what what the book's about and that kind of thing. If I listen to them carefully enough, so you're constantly surprised when you're writing then. Kinda, yeah. I, okay. I mean, gosh, I, I really didn't know anything other than the three characters in the West okay. when I started this. Yeah, I would feel so constrained. I always go into a book from the start, being just for the first at least two years, being just extremely self-indulgent. It's like <laughs> I'm not thinking about time. I'm not thinking, oh, mm-hmm. it's a waste of time for me to go to the library and spend days looking for this one little thing. I just do it. And then at some point, the last two years, I try to be really, really brutal with myself and not fall in love with anything for a little while there and be willing to cut. I I was doing a, a book thing one time uh, and and somebody in the question answer period said, said, I think your writers can be ca- categorized as putter inners or taker outers. And I think you're a putter in her. <laughs> and I said, would it surprise you to know that I think this was 13 months? Yeah. That that I threw away 300 pages of material on this book. And he was like, he couldn't believe it. This, <laughs> this woman in the back said, mind telling me where you threw it? <laughs> but anyway, I do. I Probably on this book, I may have had close to upwards of 200 pages of leftovers that just right. I just decided to get rid of it in the last year. You know, somewhere in my research as I was prepping for this show, you were getting ready to write Cold Mountain. You hadn't written Cold Mountain yet. You were working on a novel set in the present day. So this was like the late 80s, you know, because yeah. we didn't have Cold Mountain yet. And you were working on sort of a present day novel where a husband was chasing his runaway wife. And yeah. I just started to laugh. I'm like, Oh man, have you been thinking about oh, well, like? I, did you recycle this? I, I mean, did. oh, you're absolutely right. <laughs> and it never occurred to me that that book. Okay, I've got, I've got a story here. That book, um, yeah, it was a wife, present time, who ran off with a sort of survivalist kind of cult to a enclave they had in Mexico, and he's uh, he's kind of a a little bit of a wayless guy too. And he he chases her to Mexico. And I got about that far. I went to Wyoming while I was working on that book and had a cabin in Jackson Hole. And I was supposed to be working on that book. And I wrote the first bits that ever became Cold Mountain in that cabin in Wyoming. So we're going to segue for a second because <laughs> you and I have been laughing about this for a while yeah. now. But <laughs> So we're taping this, you know, in March of 2023, and, you know, we're just a few weeks out from the uh, publication of Trackers. 
And um, we're also coming up on the 27th or 26th, no, 26th anniversary 26th, yeah. of Cold Mountain. And that book is now roughly the age I was when I worked on your tour. <laughs> when I sent you all over North America. <laughs> Oh my God. And you know, that, that tour went on forever. It did. It did. You were a really good sport. <laughs> yeah. The paperback didn't come out till over a year and a half yeah. after the hardcover. And I was, I was just traveling all the time, but I remembered, I think I was in San Francisco and I was running on empty. And I finally said, Miwa, from the first thing you want me to do in the morning till the last thing you need me to do at night needs to be no more than 18 hours and you were like really yeah but really? we got there we got there <laughs> we did <laughs> we got there we got you on all the planes and all the trains and all the automobiles <laughs> i was trying to explain to a couple of young booksellers in the office i was like listen this was during the days of paper plane tickets you did not have an app on your like we didn't have cell phones MapQuest was not reliable i just remember the one complaint you had <laughs> you didn't give me enough time to drive from oxford to jackson and I was talking to a friend about this last night. She's a publicist at a different house. And she was like, oh, remember when we had to like guess whether or not there was going to be traffic or construction or anything? Like we were doing everything blind. And you were like, my hair was now, that Oxford the TV. <laughs> so. I, those, the people in Oxford, as you know, are just wonderful people. Yep. yep. And Larry Brown was there. Yep. And he, he came to my thing. And it was about the fourth thing I'd ever done, the fourth mm -hmm. bookstore event I'd ever done. Yep. So I was out late with Larry, and then they, the people from the bookstore, told me, "Oh, Jackson's uh, just a you know whatever it was, three-hour mm -hmm. drive." I had a live TV show scheduled, and you got the video of it sent to you, and your first comment was, "What the hell are you doing with your hair?" <laughs> I'm. You know, this is what happens when you let a baby publicist drive. <laughs> That's really it. I mean, when I think back, though, on what happened with Cold Mountain, I mean, National Book Award, now it's been made in, obviously, it was made into a movie in what, 03? Then it was made into an opera in 2015. And I'm like, how do you make an opera out of Cold Mountain when Inman doesn't really talk a lot? Yeah, he sings, he sings some, but. Okay. Well, I mean, I would hope so. I, yeah. listen, I don't know enough about opera. But when you think about it, too, and going back and just what we could do and how you publish books and how much that has changed, you know, yeah. we live in a yeah. very different world now and you don't really quite have to go on the road for months and months. <laughs> we sent you on an odyssey, Chuck. <laughs> we sent yeah. you on an odyssey. Yeah. And, you know, obviously it ties in well with the book. I mean, you did eventually get home. You met a lot of characters on the road and nothing bad happened. Yeah. We have some stories, but nothing bad ultimately <laughs> happened. But, you know, 13 Moons has that connection to the Aeneid as well. And now there's a connection to Sophocles in your noir in the trackers. And I just want yeah. to go back to that for a second because I was not expecting that. And I mean, I appreciate the Odyssey. I really do. I appreciate Cold Mountain. <laughs> I promise we'll come back to more Cold Mountain stories because it, it's just so funny to think about the fact that, one, this book is still out in the world, but more importantly, you're still willing to go back on the road. <laughs> but Sophocles for a second. And the Greeks and how you well, pulled from I mean, this was during that period I was talking about when I'm self-indulgent. So I was I was thinking about the Greeks and uh Greek drama in particular, but also just the general Greek mythology and stories. And Long really got his origin in Apollo, who had all those Greek nicknames, and one of them was Long Shooter because he was a great, you know, archery guy. And, uh, and so the name Long comes from Apollo. And, and then, uh, you know, when uh, Hermes stole Apollo's cattle, and he, he crawled out of his cradle to go steal cattle, there's a fragment of a Sophocles play uh, that can be translated to the trackers. And he sends a bunch of satyrs out to to track down his cattle. Yep. And it's just it's a comedy and they're they're bumbling around and all that. And I, I wanted Val to be to be that kind of a of a searcher, of a tracker. Val is such a good stand in. 
for the reader, I should say, to be specific. He really, there's some stuff that ha- he gets out to San Francisco and the Bay Area, and there's some stuff yeah. that happens, and he is wholly surprised. Val is just constantly surprised in a way that I don't think we've seen in one of your narrators before. I mean, certainly not Inman and Ada, and re- there are yeah. no real surprises for them, and certainly not Luce and Nightwoods and Verena herself and, and Will in 13 Moons. They're all sort of very, they're not as light as Val. Val is kind of oh. like, okay, you're going to have to pardon the pun. He's a whole new frontier for you as a writer. Sorry, I couldn't resist. It was so yes. terrible. It's so terrible. But can we talk about the evolution of you and your style? I mean, I know you like to rewrite, and I remember the rewriting. I know you like to rewrite. <laughs> you were really good, and you did a tour journal um, that was published on Salon.com back in the day. And, oh, yeah. um, and I remember talking to your editor at Salon at the time, and she was like, he just turns in the cleanest prose. I'm like, I know. <laughs> I, dude can't turn in a messy sentence. <laughs> I don't know about manuscripts overall, but like, you don't do messy send, and especially when it's like a tiny, quick thing. And I think it's not on the site anymore. But let's just talk about that piece of it for a second, because you are very precise, and you've always had these characters that are very sort of self-contained. They're all a little older than Val too, and I don't know if that's part of it. Although I guess Ada might be roughly the same age, but obviously a different time period. But I want to talk about the evolution of you as a stylist. Yeah, language is the thing that I enjoy the most i've tried to write faster than i do and it just doesn't work because if the language isn't isn't in the ballpark of where i want it to be i can't go forward so writing a first people ask me how many drafts did this go through well it it doesn't really go through drafts i you know i work forward uh, as much as i can but i'm also jumping around a lot but if the language isn't right, then I can't go forward. I have to keep tinkering with it. I have to go away from it for a while and do something else. But it's it's the language that's that's driving me. The trackers is a little more cinematic than earlier. But I mean, the dialogue just snaps. Like I mean, the dialogue yeah. just goes. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, and it's a little sort of not quite Claudette Colbert, uh, Clark Gable, It Happened One Night, but there's a little bit of a rhythm and a riffing to it that is not necessarily present in other books. And I'm not entirely sold on the fact that it's because it's set in the Great Depression. I keep coming back to the fact that I think you've really evolved (laughs) as a writer. And just because you're so loose on the page with this book, it's wild to see. Mm. I don't know. I can't say that it came about any faster or less tediously huh, okay. than in the past. Uh-huh. But I think it's just I think it's just the characters. I mean I I I wanted Eve to be that that kind of snappy, sharp, uh doesn't respect anybody too much. And um that mostly rose out of that set of that set of characters. And Val sometimes kind of a, a little bit soaks up some of Eve's energy especially when they're in in california and pharaoh's you know sort of a a, a fairly uh you know he's to the point so i mean i do want to write shorter books i want to read shorter books i really want to write something that's 150 pages long um, oh this could um, be a fun challenge <laughs> I've been, I've been, uh, I feel like I've read nothing but Patrick Modiano the past uh, uh, bit. And, and I just, I just read those and I think, oh, look at, look at what he can do in 200 pages or 185 pages. I think you could get there. I totally, I absolutely think you could get there. I mean, one of the things I do also love about this book though, is not just the rhythm of the sentences and the dialogue and the, the momentum of the story, but it ends in exactly the way it's supposed to end. And obviously, we're not going to tell people how it ends. But I want to talk about the construction of the ending because you don't plan. You don't. Yeah. I mean, you don't plan. So we had to get here somehow. Yeah. How'd you do it? Well, you know, there's those writers who say, oh, I don't start a book till I know the last page. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's not me. Right. I knew what I didn't want. Okay. And I think the, the challenge was 
to find a satisfying way um, once you rule out a number of things that might be expectations in in a story of this sort. Okay. Yeah. You rule those things out, mm -hmm. then how do you get to an ending that may be satisfying or at least somewhat satisfying? Okay. Is this the first ending you landed on? No. no. Okay. Yeah, I, no. I had a sneaking suspicion you were going to say that. <laughs> Have you ever just taken the first thing that it's appeared on the page? And I'm like, I don't. Probably not. I, I'm so envious of writers like Kerouac, you know. I just that might have been the drugs, Chuck. Yeah. I well, mean, maybe that's in all it. fairness, yeah. the man did a lot of speed. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't there. Yeah. I've been in books a long time. I was not actually there yeah. when Kerouac. But my understanding is, dude did a lot of speed. So, yeah. you know, I we got some cool books out of it. And then we got some stuff where it's like, yeah. hey, look. I love revision. I mean, revision is where I find the book I'm writing. I don't, I don't find it in that first pass. That's just the way it works for me. And I would, I would much rather be, be just writing all this crazy stuff, and then it's great. Yeah, I'm okay with you taking your time, though. <laughs> I'm fine. Just take your time. I do. I, I think you know. Sometimes there's this really unfair pressure on writers to either stick to whatever came before that was the thing you know yeah I, I sort of feel like sometimes writers in the uk have an easier time just saying well this is the book i'm going to write and y'all yeah. can deal with it as you will yeah. and i think sometimes there's an expectation here and i just i really want to get lost in a book i just i want yeah. someone to tell me something i don't know or just take me somewhere or teach me something or break my heart or break my brain sometimes that happens yeah. in the same sentence but you know, when I look at your novels as a body of work, right? For me, the the sort of obsessions are there. Like, it's sort of clear what you like to noodle with, regardless of the yeah. time period, regardless of, you know, the details of the story. I sort of know what I'm getting with you. But I'm wondering, too, Verena, there was one point where you felt like Verena herself was a little too Western and a little too crude. And Eve is so not that. Despite Eve's story, she is, she's a great character. But you had to tweak Verena because your wife was just like, dude, no, this does not work. This is too much. So how much of that do you take book to book? Like, here's the thing I learned about character, yeah. and I think I'm just going to carry it for it. Because I feel like, you know, Eve could have been really rough around the edges, and she is not. She knows exactly who she is. She's a great, uh, great I, character. Once I realized, for me, the core of understanding Eve was when I realized she liked high school. She, <laughs> you know? Yeah. She liked the she liked Latin class. She liked, you know, the kinds of things that were in high school back then. And that that was taken away from her by the depression. And that that shaped that shaped her her character for me from that point forward. It's a really great detail. It's a really mm -hmm really great detail and it's so revealing because again you know she's been riding the rails and she's got this backstory that is slightly complicated and yeah. well a little messy yeah. <laughs> what else were you reading while you were playing with what became the trackers i mean there's i'm not kidding when i say you've written a noir set in the great depression i mean did yeah. you go back to the greats did you go back to sort of the marlows and the you know yeah but i i read those a lot i mean i even in graduate school i wrote i wrote a lot of of papers about chandler um and hammett well this one may actually have been useful in this i wrote this paper about amateur detectives in victorian novels yeah, there you and, go. <laughs> and Val's a, an amateur detective as the book goes along. It all comes together. It all yeah. comes back yeah. to school yeah. and reading and mm -hmm. all of the stuff that, you know, you sort of layer it on as you go, right? Like all of the books that we read yeah. become part of whatever we do. I mean, I was a history major in college. I was not an English major. So I've actually, I keep attempting to read Middlemarch and I keep failing. I even bought a new copy because it's prettier than the one I owned. I was like, that's just too ugly. I'm never going to read it. So I bought a new one with, you know, French flaps and nope, nope. Yeah, I'm that, way with, I'm that way with Bruce. I keep trying, but. <sighs> I have a really, really good translation of the first volume 
yeah. and it's terrific and i still haven't finished it because i mean part of it is too there's so much out there in the world that i would love to read on top of what i'm doing but i produce quite a lot of original audio in a single week and i don't always get to yeah. revisit stuff but can we you know i remember years ago and i may have gotten this off of your author questionnaire and it's been a minute since i read that but i remember you saying comics were part of what drove you to story and drove you to being a writer and you know like many other kids you started writing books when you were little kind of thing yeah but can we talk about some of the writers who've been a big influence on you just as a reader and just as mm. you know sort of a guy who likes to write and yeah. not just the author <laughs> i mean in in high school i had this friend who was a football player and he was a year or two older he said you don't you don't read good enough books you you read a lot of junk <laughs> and I wasn't differentiating. I okay. was just reading. And he, he said, read Ethan Frome, read oh. the old man in the sea. Read. And, and that sort of, uh, that was, that was a real nudge in, in the direction. In college, I used to spend a huge amount of time in the library reading stuff that I wasn't assigned to read. And I read, uh, I read a lot of, of Russians. Uh, Turgenev was a, an especial uh, favorite, uh, but but for whatever reason, that's that's if I had sp spare time or if I just made spare time and didn't do something I was supposed to do, uh, that's what I would be be sitting in the library reading was was something some of those nineteenth century Russians. Yeah, if you have a chance, there's a new translation of Fathers and Children yeah. from New York Review of oh. the New York Review of Books Classics and. Yeah. Um, it's pretty great. I'll have I'll have to get that. I don't read Russian, so I don't know. But I mean, in terms of a reading experience, literature and trans, it's yeah. pretty great. About it's two thirds great. of the books I've bought in the past five years have been from that series, right? From New York Review of Books Classics. So good. Yeah. So so good. Yeah. And I just there are times where you know you have to go and weed the shelves at home every now and again, and. Yeah. They never get off the shelves. They never, yeah. they never make it to the donate box yeah. <laughs> ever, ever. <laughs> do you miss the world of the trackers? Do you miss that sort of getting lost in the research and the characters and the story and just stepping out of the 21st century? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, when I, when I'm doing it, I'm reading the books from that period. I'm listening to the music from that period, watching the movies. And some so much of that, given given how awful the times were, so much of that, uh, especially music and movies, had so much life and and energy and optimism in it. I mean, that's one of the things that I, I wanted to keep in mind in writing this book is that I remember in my family, my grandparents were very progressive kind of people. When they talked about the Depression, they mostly talked about uh, education and hope. And, you know, you, you keep on working toward these things that would be good for everybody and they'll happen. Uh, so I wanted to keep, keep a, a sense of that in the book. I mean, that's something you've always been really clear about, regardless of which book you're describing. I mean, talking about historical fiction is that conversation between past and present. And I mean, that's the thing that I appreciate the most reading historical fiction is how do I figure out what I can take out of it and bring into, you know, my life with my multiple cell phones and multiple laptops and very hardwired life. You know, I spend a lot of time on planes, you know, things like that, where, you know, everything seems slower at first for Val and Eve yeah. and Long, but the stakes ratchet up and everything starts to move faster. The pacing of the trackers is pretty spectacular. Oh, and as the stakes you. go and thank it gets, you. you know, and you're cranking it up a little bit and I'm just like, oh, I don't want this to end. Yeah. And yet I don't want this to end. And yet. Yeah. A little, a little bit of work went into that. Yeah. I can imagine. <laughs> no, that. I've read enough books to know that when it goes that seamlessly, no, that doesn't just pop out of the pen. That's that's I, I'm not going to ask how many rewrites it took because I can see you just yeah. chipping away until you got the thing you wanted. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and again, you know, for listeners, when you get to the end of the trackers, you are going to be so deeply satisfied 
because it ends the only way it could. And when I say that, I mean, it is true to these characters. It's true to the story. It's true to the period. It's true to sort of the energy on the page, right? Have you found the next thing? Because frequently you find whatever the nut of the next book is while you're working on the one that's hitting the world. So do you know yet? I've got a little bit of writing on a couple of different, uh, different things that I'm not committed to yet. I can't quite decide, but but I've got, you know, 2,000 pages here, 4,000 pages there kind of wait, thing. Wait, you have 4,000 pages? Words. Excuse <laughs> okay. me, words. I was words. about to say, wait, Chuck. No, no. Dude, words. you can't write 4,000 pages <laughs> no. and not be committed. That's, no, that's words. Okay, <laughs> words. Okay, that I understand. That is that is an entirely different exercise. When do you know? Like, when do you know the thing actually has life and it's it's the right? I mean... It can't just be the language, right? Like you have to. No, I, I have to, you know, get committed to the characters uh -huh. and okay. the time. And it, it, it usually takes about 30, 30 pages before I think, okay, this, this might work. This might work. And then you sort of stare at it for a little bit. Yeah. And you go yeah. for a walk. Yeah. What do you love most about the trackers? That's a hard question because I, um, when I get to the end of a book, Mm -hmm. I'm mostly just seeing potential problems, potential. Did I work enough on this bit? Did I work enough okay. on that bit? Okay. I remember with Cold Mountain, somebody I finally said, hey, we should just send somebody down to North Carolina to get it because you're at the point where you're not making it better. You're just making it different. So I've tried to use that ever since. And you try to recognize that point when you're not making it better. But I, I like to revise. I like to tinker. And so I, it takes a while before I am not thinking just about, oh, did I get that right? Did I, you know? Yeah, I remember hearing a story that maybe the manuscript for 13 Moons, it was probably the closest you'd come to hitting a day. Well, it, it, it would have been the day. Okay. It was specified on okay. the contract. There you go. <laughs> I mean, obviously, when you're publishing a book, you want it to be big. You want it to get all of the things you want it. Yeah. And what we sold a million copies in the first like 20 minutes. I mean, it was it was a wild, wild ride. And you just it, you mean, said yes was. to everything. It was it great. Was. <laughs> it was. And I remember asking Morgan before yeah. the book was published, how many copies do we need to sell for you to be happy? And by that, I meant for you to publish another book. And he said. Uh, 25,000. And then he paused and he said, well, 20. And, you know, it, I mean, it was just crazy. The most surreal moment was going into New York in November of that. The book came out in May, I think. Going to New York with a book nominated for the National Book Award, number one on the New York Times bestseller list. That That was just like this isn't real. They would, you know, you'd put me in an institution if I'd dreamed of that uh, a year ago. I had to look it up. It was 61 weeks. And I was like, yeah. really? Yeah. I mean, I was laughing about this with your kid yesterday over email. One, your adult shot, which <laughs> I, I don't even know what to do with that. But, you know, I used to have those crazy paper calendars for you with post-it yeah. notes and different colored yeah. Sharpies and all. I still run my life with post-it notes. And when she said, well, I think I picked up my love of post-it notes from those crazy calendars. I was just, <laughs> I'm delighted. I have turned someone on to the joy of post-it you, notes. You gave me those. I know. Do you, you still have those? Yeah. I oh, still I still have those. Oh, that's course, hysterical. Of course. A million post-it notes and <gasps> a year and a half or more of calendar pages. I mean, who needs an app when you have post-it notes? Chuck, we ran your life for 18 exactly. months off of post-it notes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you let us do it. <laughs> I really, you just kept saying, okay, I'll get on the plane. Well, and you're I mean, FedExing plane tickets to weird places. And yeah. Oh, I mean, the it. thing was, it just felt like um, it didn't feel real, mm -hmm. but it felt like this is a moment that I, that I'm, I'm connecting with readers. I'm going to these bookstores. I'm shaking hands with, and, you know, not just readers, but with the bookstore owners. Yep. Yep. And this, this bit of a tour I'm going to do is some of those people that you scheduled back million, then. Yeah, a million years ago. I'm going down, going down to Mississippi, you know, hitting all those, hitting all those stores that have been so good to me for 
26 years. But now you don't have to tour for 18 months straight, I don't think. Yeah, no. <laughs> I think we can do it a little differently no. now. Yeah. <laughs> sure, it's great to see you in person too, but it's also nice that we can do this over Zoom and it makes yeah. accessibility less of an issue for yeah. you know other people and it's great. And I just, I'm so pleased we got to hang out, even if it is yeah. just virtually, but yeah, it's this book. How? How? It seems like we just did this yesterday, and yet I know intellectually we did not just do this yesterday. I yeah. mean, five book, four books later, right? Yeah. Your fifth novel, The Trackers, is out. And I'm just hoping listeners have as much fun reading it as I did, because really it is, this book's a blast. It's an absolute <laughs> blast. And yeah, you're doing lots of big things with American history and the mythology of the West and all of this, but... Yeah. It's also just really fun. <laughs> it's really, that's, really fun, this book. Yeah. yeah, I was that's that's a that's a target I was aiming at. <laughs> you know? I think it's pretty yeah. cool. Anyway, Charles yeah. Frazier. I, I you know, I know it's your byline and I'm gonna say it again. Charles Frazier, author of the you know, the trackers, we're so happy to see you. But honestly, Chuck, this was a delight. It was so oh. nice to hang out with you. <laughs> this was so much fun. So much fun. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of great books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Trackers. I'm Mark, coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I'm joined by my book buddy, Jamie. Hello. Hi, Mark. I'm Jamie, and I'm at my Barnes & Noble in Leawood, Kansas. So we're going to dive right in. I am very excited for our new Charles Fraser. I think he's wonderful. And it made me think of sort of an American odyssey and made me think of one of my favorite books from last year, which is The Lincoln Highway by Amor Tolles. Oh, I loved this book so much. Uh, it is uh, currently available in paperback now, so please pick it up and all of his books in general. But this one in particular just fits the mold so nicely. It is set in the 50s. We get to travel with these four boys as they embark on a not quite cross-country. I think the intention for a cross-country adventure was intact, and then things sort of took a turn. Really, they're all looking for a fresh start and a way to find their place in the world for their own reasons. They face their past, they find out how they fit into the world, but really they're shaping their destinies uh, and realizing that they have a little bit more control and autonomy over how their lives can be led. So the real journey really is in the hearts of these boys, Emmett and Billy and Duchess and Wooly. Dear God, Wooly, I want to read a book just about Wooly. Honestly, all of the four of these characters could have their own book and I would eat it up. Um, I, I love each of them in their own special way. Sometimes I want to give him a good shake, but mostly I want to give him a big hug and say, you got this, buddy, you can do this. The way that they band together while also finding themselves, I think is just a really masterful feat. I have not really read anything quite like this that feels like a classic American tale, but was written not that long ago. Like I said, the book is now in paperback, so no excuse not to grab this. Uh, when you stop in for your Charles Frazier, this is a beautiful compliment to trackers. So please check out The Lincoln Highway by Immortals. Jamie, what have you got for us? Well, I just want to say uh, customers, every time I point out Lincoln Highway or I, I recommend it to someone, every customer <laughs> practically says, oh, I've already read it. But they also go, oh, I love, I love that book so much. I get a lot of that. So that's a, that's a good endorsement, I think. All right. So I was thinking about the trackers. Uh, and I also am a Charles Frazier fan. So I was excited to see this one on our list. And some of the standout uh, moments in that book come from the interactions that Val has along his long trek with these characters who are trying to survive in the midst of the Great Depression. Certainly, there are plentiful biographies of people who lived through that time. But what sticks out for me is Rick Bragg's book about his grandfather called Ava's Man. If you've never heard or read um, one of Rick Braggs's memoirs of growing up in the South, all about his really entertaining family you are missing out. The most well-known of all of them is definitely um, the reader favorite, It's All Over But the Shoutin', uh, which is about his mother, Margaret, and is um, a really, really interesting book. But this book looks back further to her own childhood and specifically to her father, Charlie Bundrum, and his struggles to raise a family during the Great Depression. So Rick 
Bragg never actually got to meet his grandfather. Um, Charlie died before he was born. Uh, but as he was writing all these stories about his family, he kept hearing tales about Charlie and people would smile and kind of tear up and, and become very emotional when they talked about him as he was um, interviewing them. And so he started to collect everybody's very best Charlie stories. And he found that this man was beloved. <laughs> and it's easy to see as you read the book why he's so fondly remembered. He's born just after the turn of the century, kind of on the border of Alabama and Georgia in the Appalachian foothills. And he is very far from city life. He grows up hunting and trapping in the forest for food. He makes his own boat to fish in at one point, and he has this sort of moral code that he lives by that he's developed out here in isolation uh, that's based around hard work. He's a roofer by trade, not taking from other people, no matter how little he has, and um, on being a really good dad to his seven children. Seven children. <laughs> that's a lot. Uh, so during the Depression, Charlie... He's a young dad, and he has to pull out all the stops to keep his family safe and sound, and he has to keep moving to follow the work so that he can keep food on the table. At one point, we learn that he has moved 21 times in a 10-year span in order to keep um, earning a living. Meanwhile, he's living on beans and leftover cornbread so that his children can eat, and he starts making his own liquor, which he trades for food. And uh, he drinks quite a lot of his own product. And there are plenty of times in the stories uh, where he has to kind of make a quick getaway, evade the law. Um, there are plenty of drunken brawls. As nice of a dad as he is, he's not one to back down when he feels he needs to. So all that, you know, in and of itself may not seem that extraordinary of a story. But as you keep reading all these, you know, really tearful reminiscences of Rick Bragg's family, he just he does such a good job of building up this really fascinating mythology uh, really around his grandfather. And that makes for a great story and a, a fun and touching read about surviving worse than hard times. So that's uh, Ava's Man by Rick Bragg. Fantastic. Rick Bragg is he's fun and you can tell he has fun doing what he's doing. Nice choice, as usual. But that is all we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in to Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I'm Jamie. You can follow my home store at BN Leewood KS. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Happy reading. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.